you're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Sophie Thomas. Sophie Thomas is a fellow avid bookworm and anime lover and a Jiu-Jitsu practitioner and active competitor. What's more is that she's a fitness coach and coach mentor. She's an LDNM certified personal trainer, holds a BA from King's College London and has completed her Master of Science specializing in cognitive psychology. In 2022, she published her first book, Philosophy, which we will discuss in the beginning of this episode. We dive deep into the psychology of resilience. What is resilience and what is resilience not? How can we make psychological concepts tangible and ready to apply for martial arts life? What are big no's when it comes to coaching? And if that is you, what can you do to change? Let's have a listen. Welcome, Sophie, to the podcast. I'm so stoked to have you here. You already were on uh, a guest speaker at the Fry Thrive Method in this time on our podcast. So please, Sophie, introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, it's always such a pleasure, especially, as you mentioned, I was um, on Thrive Drive and I've always loved the ethos of what you guys do and also the fact it's so evidence-based and there's such a such a purpose to everything you guys do. So it is a real privilege. My name is Sophie Thomas. I am a fitness and psychology coach based in London. Um, a lot of my work there is online. And I specialize in behavioral and habit change, utilizing some of the psychology research out there, um, which means I often help my fitness clients who struggle with habit change or goal setting, especially when they're really stressed or overwhelmed with dealing with that. And in addition, I like to help other coaches with the psychological research and how to not feel overwhelmed so they can help their clients who are, you know, struggling with, you know, even mental health issues uh, on a lower scale basis, like anxiety, stress, burnout, and how to help them better serve their clients um, with relation to things like habit change. I'm also a writer and published author. My book, Philosophy, was published last year, and you can buy that via Amazon nice and easily, um, which is also useful, especially because coaching can be expensive. So I find books are a great way of getting out your value system and what you, um, how you attribute your own skill set to coaching in a neatly, prettily packaged little um, book. No, I absolutely loved reading it. I immediately bought it when it came out and like um, me being an historian, of course, we had to read also all these philosophers and especially some is like, you know, I always wanted to read them but they're not easily readable. Some, some I'm like, come on guys, you can also say this a little bit more succinct. So I was really impressed by how you made their work so easily understandable because, uh, because you got the key things out, but I can understand that when somebody just buys their book and just opens it and reads it and it's like, okay, I, I may understand the words, but I have no, no idea what the sentences mean. And I found also so cool because indeed you figure out what kind of person am I? Do I want to be like that? Of course, because just because you tend to think in a certain way doesn't mean that that is the best way for you to think or to approach things. So I found it also for me very helpful because I think when you have coaches that don't understand the psychological part of it, they just teach you how to squat or whatever. Like 
that is just one part of the puzzle when it comes to overall health and your mindset is like the biggest one ever. So when you also understand why you may be disappointed or why you put additional stress on you, that's maybe really not even, um, you know, healthy. It's great when you can learn that from a good coach, but even, but often they don't know it. So then your book, I found really invaluable because you just kind of get an idea. Okay. Am I more like this or that? Or maybe in my case, I was pretty eclectic, you know, that I'm like, oh, I have parts of this and that. Like, so I thought, okay, I involved already a little, but there's of course always room for improvement. Thank you so much. It's honestly, I, it's, I really, really am flattered. It means a lot to me when you say those words. Um, I completely agree with you. I think the reason why I wrote the book was because I was so sick of reading Kantian philosophy where it describes an ethics system so one sentence lasts three pages and it can be really daunting and hard to read. I mean, I love philosophy and I think it really helps inform us about how to navigate our lives, especially with big lofty subjects and metaphysical concepts like ethics and morality, for instance. But um, I don't like the way it can gatekeep, um, even if unknowingly. Um, there's a lot of things about philosophy that can seem very daunting and also put people off from engaging with it in the first place. and that's really a shame because that's not the person's fault. That's not someone picking up a Kant book and thinking, oh, I'm stupid. I can't read this. No one likes to read Hegel or Kant. It's not a fun activity. What's fun about it is passing through and dissecting the ideas and getting a lot of meaning from it. But trust me when I say it's not fun to sit through Hegelian philosophy and having to try and dissect exactly what he's saying. Um, once you get to the pith of it, it's great. But I wanted to write the book in a way that was engaging and meaningful so people could kind of dip their toe into philosophy and see why it's worth their time, as well as understanding better about themselves and how they can better set up their habits. Because I think that's also what informs can inform is one piece of the pie, at least, can inform how the way we feel about ourselves and our value system and the way we live our lives. Just by cultivating a set of routines or habits that are meaningful to us, not necessarily to the person next door, not necessarily to your teammate, the person you share um, your gym space with, but to you. And making sure that each time you're living through these habits, you're thinking to yourself, okay, so how far am I, if I'm creating like a bullseye, how far am I from the middle of where I want to be. Um, that's actually what I talk about in the book as well, because I go into a concept known as acceptance and commitment therapy. And in that format of therapeutic techniques, they utilize value systems. So figuring out what your values are. Are you family orientated? Are you adventure orientated? Do you value connection? Do you value community? Do you value freedom, individual freedom? All these concepts can help build up a picture of where you are better suited in terms of cultivating your routine. And I use that in the book to supplement a lot of these philosophical musings. So yes, philosophy is wonderful and there's so much wisdom and truth in it. But what's even better is when we can cultivate those wisdoms and kind of base it and anchor it in psychological research and evidence-based um, musings. Because philosophy really is the grandfather of psychology in a sense. And psychology, I mean, if you think about CBT, right, that was essentially formatted from its original creator before CBT became formalized. It was essentially an offshooting of stoicism and existentialism. So a lot of the um, a lot of the tenets in some of the therapeutic tools can be present and found in a lot of philosophical writings as well. So what we just want to do is get some of the good stuff from philosophy and say, hey, look, this is where it's actually been noticed and marked by science that it has a reputation for working and reputation for improving our well-being and mental resilience. 
Yeah, I think just for the listeners, CBT is like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, just for those listeners that may not um, know the terminology. Um, yes, being an historian, and especially an ancient historian, you know, I thought like the written is what we work with. I'm also an archaeologist, but like especially the written, what we work with and the, that space of thought and also wanting to apply it is, I think, the next step. I mean, it's great to have like this thinking experiments, right? But we kind of want to take that and go to the next step in seeing like, okay, so how can we actually make it tangible? How can we actually apply it? And that's also one of my biggest criticisms for my own historical field that indeed is gatekeeping where you talk about it, that they also write in ways where I'm like, when you have really good people that want to learn, but when they open it, and I mean, I had being in Germany, I have read German articles, as you say, the fucking first page was one sentence, not to mention the rest of the page was all footnotes, which I mean, footnotes are important, but you can overdo. And that I'm like, yeah, of course they stop, not because they're stupid or anything like that, but it's just like a whole different skill set that yes, we need to learn it when we study it. But when I read and in the end, I was like, ah, so basically his or her main point was this and this and this. I'm like, dude, you can say this like in a few pages and then give some examples. And I think the next stage for us really, especially for historians, I mean, they often say like, oh, you know, why are we not um, more read or why is the public? So yeah, what's the use of history or cultural studies, something like that? I'm like, it's because you guys don't make it accessible to the public. So when I write, sometimes people say to me like, yeah, Lorraine, it has to be more. I was like, what do you mean? I have to use more difficult words. Like often, like if I can say it as simple as possible, it means I truly understand it and I don't need to hide between just some, some, some I don't know, super archaic words. So I said like, no, my work is going to be accessible for everybody because then I will be read and people will learn from me. So yeah, same with, with psych psychology or, or especially philosophy. I think these two together, sometimes also when I go for psychological research, I was like, okay, I spend a lot of time of just finding out what the terminology means. And I have to read those articles to kind of really get a grasp of these concepts. So it takes a long while. If you were just a, like a coach, you didn't have necessarily academic training. I mean, you don't have to, but you are like, okay, I want to learn more about psychology. I want to get a better coach. But before, even if you find that article you want to read, usually they need other articles to kind of understand where we're at. And that's what I like about philosophy, again, is that you just kind of make that together and you, as you explain, you do. And that is, I think, what is so great about this book. Thank you. That's honestly so kind of you. I really appreciate it. And I completely agree, as someone who has gone through the trenches of psychological research many a time, that psychological research is kind of a, like an, a bit of an on pass in the sense that we have something going on called the replication crisis. And I'm certain you've encountered it as well with your work in history in terms of, you know, for instance, garnering valid and reputable sources and putting it forth as um, an accurate depiction of what was happening and discussing that. And the best way I can describe the psychological um, issue, and actually this is an issue across sciences, the scientific issue of the replication crisis is, imagine I've written a recipe for the most delicious cookies in the world. Right. Now, let's say I um, have vested interest in a specific bakery or a specific baked good or ingredient. And I've made these amazing cookies, but it might be that I want to get forth the point that this ingredient was the best thing that made these cookies really tasty. And I put it in the recipe. 
at least in the written recipe. When I physically make the cookies, I don't necessarily put the ingredient in there or I tweak the amount. But in order to get my point across, my argument across, I might say, hey, I use loads of cinnamon in these cookies when I might have used just a pinch or I've, you know, I over-exaggerate or under-exaggerate how much or little I use. So then the next person goes to try this recipe because they're saying, I want to make these delicious cookies too. I'm going to follow the recipe to the letter and I'm going to have success according to the logic. And they go and try and make these cookies based on what I've written. But of course, because I've told Porky's and said that I've used more or less of something that I actually haven't, they try and replicate the cookies and the cookies taste disgusting or they just fall flat or they end up being really burnt or taste nowhere near as good as the ones I've made. So in essence, this is the replication crisis as an analogy in that someone makes a really good, uh, a good study saying, look at these results. They're so shiny and new and exciting. And they've actually tweaked a lot of what they've described in the methodology design or the results. They've, you know, tacked a little few statistics or numbers. And then this poor and assuming PhD student just wanting to publish their first paper goes and like, this is brilliant. I'm going to do this for my next study. And they get totally different results. And they're at a loss because they followed the methodology design of the prior study and they followed it to the T and they've been instructed accordingly. And now there's a bit of a mess because the original hypothesis or the original exploration of a relationship between variables, for instance, that's now, it's gone because all these studies who've tried to replicate that are failing to find the connection because the original study was so flawed. And psychology research has this issue a lot because uh, unfortunately with psychological research, we don't know as much as we think about the brain or we'd like to know about the brain and human behavior and the mind. It's still a bit, it's a little bit chaotic and it's very difficult to derive quantitative statements in such a nuanced area. So a lot of publishers or researchers will make exciting statements and exciting claims to get published. And as much as it's unethical, I kind of don't blame them. You have to put food on the table. I get it. I get what you have to do, but it creates a vicious cycle. You end up having a lot of jargon, buzzwords for new theories coming in. Uh, for instance, cognitive flexibility and psychological flexibility are two different things. But you read that and you think they're just semantic, they're just different different words describing the same thing. But as you can see, they're just layering and layering and laying different theories to try and account for the differences in results as well. So it's a minefield psychological research and it can be difficult to discern what is robust, reputable findings versus what's not so not so decent in a study that doesn't actually account for so much of the variance in a certain finding. And there's some adages you can adhere to. You can, you know, think about, okay, who created the study? Um, what are the effect sizes? What's the variance between variables? Some bread and butter things to just help you be aware of when you can find like a, a Wild West study versus one that's, that's you know, boring but safe because that tends to be the good studies. Um, and yeah, another rule of thumb is, you know, the more exclamatory or exciting a study is, odds are there's been some tweaking to it, which is really sad. But because science moves at a glacial but very, you know, promising pace, it has to consistently be quite cynical in the way it disproves or proves a hypothesis. It has to err on the side of being pessimistic so that we don't make too many assumptions that don't end up being valid. The more sensible a study is, I'd say, you know, the more in keeping it has been in prior findings in general, 
is something that you can create a safe bet on. There's always exceptions. Um, my partner, for instance, who's doing a PhD in chemistry, he actually has had issues with the opposite side where they found a really exciting new way, novel way of researching. And there's a lot of people gatekeeping saying, no, that's not the way we do it. So you have issues on this other side as well. So research is kind of in a bit of a crisis in terms of psychology. So it's completely understandable that coaches feel overwhelmed by it. And it's it's I, I feel overwhelmed by it as a researcher and academic myself. Sometimes what's best is almost to take a step back and just follow some simple steps and to not burn yourself out by going to too many studies. Pick a field you want to be interested in and specialize that and get really good, you know, practice the skill of reading papers in those fields and applying those steps and applying the things you need to be noticing. And then it can feel much less overwhelming because you're not focusing on the whole field of psychology, which is massive. You're focusing on one narrow area in one particular branch. Yeah, I think it's really important to say this. I mean, also in history, I was in ancient history, but also ancient history has like all these niches. Um, my my PhD wasn't about pain behavior. And also there, there's a lot of gatekeeping. Like I use a lot of anthropological notions, psychological notions and everything. And um, some older historians, they were like, no, you know, also philosophy, they know these things of like the death of the author, all this kind of thing. They also like, yeah, you can't figure out how people felt and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but even if I can't find it, that is super interesting. So like in words, indeed in antiquity, they didn't necessarily talk a lot about it, only like a later antiquity in Rome. But they did describe how their bodies responded to traumatic events, which is like pain behavior. And like you can say a lot about even already in the Iliad, you have like a moment when um, Menelaus sees that Agamemnon is like bleeding, he's hurt. He just describes that how his brother was shuddering. And it's very fascinating that when in the Iliad, a soldier dies, then they, you know, they stop bleeding. They, they, they don't talk about it anymore. But if they really like stop bleeding and they continue meant more or less that oh, they're healed up enough. So they didn't say like, oh, this one was in pain. This was what that, that they're more, they more described like, oh, he was shouting. He was clenching his teeth or his fists, or they described the pain behavior and looking from a different perspective of it. And this is, and this, I did not learn from history at all. I learned this from anthropology. I learned this from psychology to look at behavior. So from that, you could figure out a whole lot. I mean, later you have Elias Aristides, like, I think he's great. He kind of thought he had almost any um, injury and disease you can imagine. And many historians also laughed about him. But what is interesting is that in his writing, you can see that he really finds ways to give meaning to his chronic pain because nobody understands it. And that in his narrative, in the end, he says that it was given by the god Asclepius so that his oratory would become better, which is very fascinating. So I think you can approach so many things, but you need to think out of the boxes. And I had many great findings. I mean, another one where I also definitely put some fire up the archaeologists was that archaeologists found physical remains of spines. And they said, oh, this spine is degenerated. So this person must have had chronic pain. But we know that, for instance, herniated discs is just part of life. Like um, I know somebody, he's a Russian dentist, and he's amazing. But his back, if you look at scans of his back, you think he's not able to move and you think he must be in excruciating pain, but he's not. So just because you find a physical remain of somebody and it may look like super messed up, doesn't mean that they are in chronic pain. You can say as an archaeologist, okay, we see this and this and this. So he or she or whatever, they had this 
condition or maybe they had this illness, but it doesn't mean that they were in pain. And this is really something where, um, what I also criticize history a lot for, like whether it's chemistry, psychology, there's just so much that you only really know when you dare to kind of go out of your field to go back into your field. And that's why I encourage coaches in martial arts to really dig into psychology, into sports performance stuff, because I think it's so amazing and you can benefit yourself and your students so much from that. So Sophie, what do you think is now really a topic we should discuss when it comes to the martial arts world, world and performance? So a couple of things. Um, one thing, I do think we should touch more upon pain science because I think that's really interesting because there's so much propaganda and myths peddled by fitness gurus and the fitness industry regarding pain science and physical pain because we're in a sport that obviously implicates many kind of injuries. Um, and I think it would be cool for people to understand a bit more about pain science and um, why just because they either have an injury or they feel pain you know, vice versa, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily injured or if they have an injury, that's my, maybe why they don't feel pain. That's a really interesting topic. And I think that's um, something I have to deal with my clients, both as coaches and clients, fitness clients alike. And in terms of the psychology aspect of martial arts, definitely I think resilience will be a great topic because that is also something that is often obfuscated and twisted, particularly when you see like social media posts about um you know, David Goggins, Stay Hard, and concepts like discipline, which isn't even an agreed upon term in clinical psychology literature. So I think something that would be really useful for the listeners, particularly if they are, you know, budding athletes in martial arts, the concept of resilience, I think is a big one because there's so many misnomers in social media, so many kind of social media quotes and platitudes regarding discipline and being tough, which is misequated with being resilient. And actually resilience is a very nuanced concept um, that is defined in the literature, um, which encompasses a lot of fields in psychology, whether it's cognitive, clinical, even educational, organisational. It requires looking at the literature, for instance, regarding clinical and mental health psychology, but also the ways in which the brain mechanises underlying processes and how we interact with those processes and the world around us. And so I think that would be a really good topic to start off with. Yeah, go ahead. So define and that's the thing resilience let's start there so it's interesting because resilience has obviously been touched upon across many bands within psychology and so different authors will have slightly varying um, definitions but overall there seems to be a trend or a underlying theme that individuals who are able to adapt like kind of like an elastic band to particular life stresses rather than just kind of let the stress happen to them and like passively or be overwhelmed by stress. So kind of the negative opposite of what would mean to be adaptive. Um, they tend to be individuals um, depicting resilience. So by that, I mean, it doesn't mean, for instance, um, just trying to think of a, a small a micro example and then you can build from there. So let's say, for instance, you're going to work in the morning and your train is really late. Now, what this could mean is, you know, you've got three options here. You've got one, which is feeling overwhelmed by the fact that your train is really late. So getting really stressed, getting really out of breath, thinking, oh, 
I'm going to be late for work. Or like, why even bother going into work? I, I might even get fired if your brain could take yourself to that catastrophization period. Then you start to feel really stressed. You feel helpless. You feel powerless. And it might be that your behavior means you don't even go into work at all. You call in sick. You withdraw. You avoid. That's when you one might feel overwhelmed by a stressor. Let's say you just, for instance, feel um, you're, you're, with, you're with the stressor and you're letting it kind of wash over you, you're letting it happen to you. So you're neither adapting and you're neither feeling overwhelmed. You're kind of in this middle period, which we all do, I think, on a daily basis, because I think we're human beings. We can't always be so on it all the time. And it's good to be aware of when we are just more um, present with it. So it could be that the train is really late. You're neither super overwhelmed, but you're a bit frustrated. So you're thinking, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be late for work. I may as well, you know, get a coffee on the way in because I know I'm going to be late. So if I'm going to be late now, I may as well be even later. And you're feeling quite frustrated. You're feeling angry. You're feeling stressed and you're feeling quite deflated by everything. So then the behavior might be you go and get a coffee. You're feeling demotivated for work. So your productivity levels go down. So that day feels a bit of a sluggish day. And I guarantee we've all had those days. I know I for sure have them. Now, on the other hand, we can look at adaptation to the stress. So that's when we might be in the more resilient category. So you might be, again, you miss the train, you're late for work, there's train delays, there's train delights, del- strikes, whatever. And so you're thinking, gosh, my train has been delayed. What can I do now to mitigate the situation? What can I do to feel less stressed in this moment of time? And so your feelings in that time might be, yes, you're still feeling stressed. That doesn't go away. The stress suddenly doesn't magically go away from your emotional physiological reaction, but you feel compelled to act upon it. You feel driven, you feel focused because you know there's a stressor here. So, you know, for this period of time, you need to be a bit more focused on it. You might text your manager saying, going to be a bit late. You might text him saying, do you want a coffee on the way in? Because I'm going to pick one up. And you might make a list on your phone and your notes whilst you're waiting for the next train of what you need to do when you get in, priorities when you get in because you're going to be late. The behavior then is much more driven and purposeful and focused. So as you can see, just from this one example, there's kind of three potential branches or iterations of behavior you can undertake. There's obviously so many more, but it just gives a basic idea of what it looks like to adapt to when a stressor happens, what it looks like when you might feel and be really overwhelmed by something. And what happens when you're, you're, you're kind of just muddling through it, I would say, you know, you're muddling through a situation in the best way you can, which again is very human. We probably undertake all three at a variety of times in our lives, during our week, during our month. You know, there's no good or bad. It's not saying this is the best way to be. It's just an interesting interaction of how we can explore and navigate um, our lives. And I would argue it's probably impossible, possibly, to always be in the adaptive side. Because again, we're human beings. Things like illness, big life events, routines come into play that affect this trifecta of behavior or behavioral responses. So when it comes to martial arts, for instance, especially, I mean, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I kind of look at it through jiu-jitsu, but we can absolutely look at it from a more generalized lens of martial arts because the martial way can be defined in a similar vein across all sports in this branch. And I would say martial arts in general provide a lot of stresses, both in psychological senses and physiological senses, mental and emotional, in cognitive and physical. It's a massive stressor when we undertake training um, for many reasons. So let's say, for instance, in an instance of resilience for martial arts, it could be that you might be training for a competition 
regardless of whichever martial art you undertake. And you've got this competition day and that's a big, big stressor for you. And so again, we're going to think about those that trifecta of behavioral responses. You have adapt, you have muddling through and you have being overwhelmed by. So someone who might have a lot going on for them, who might have actually, you know, done such a good job training the physical, but not necessarily looked at the way they might be feeling really stressed or nervous. It's very possible, and this has happened to me so many times at competitions, where they get really overwhelmed. They get overwhelmed by the stimulus. They suddenly catastrophize everything because this big scary hall looks much scarier than it, it, it actually is in reality because the brain can do phenomenal things. And then suddenly they're thinking, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. I can't do jujitsu. I'm rubbish. I'm going to be awful. I'm going to perform really badly. Of course, the feeling is frightened, is terrified, is frozen, is panicked, is shocked. All these things that aren't actually conducive to feeling fluid and present in the moment. And behavior obviously could mean you freeze up on the mats or you know you make mistakes you don't normally do in training, things that aren't reflective of your training at all. But simply because of this psychological phenomena, it's translating as such onto the competition mats. And then of course, muddling through and I've definitely modeled through competitions and it's funny because you can really feel the difference between muddling through and adapting. It almost feels like, oh, okay, I might have, you might have even meddled through muddling through, but how many times have you heard a competitor say, I wasn't my best performance, but they've still meddled. Odds are the psychological frame was probably in this, I'm just going to get through this. I don't feel great on the day. Um, I feel kind of tired. I feel quite unexcited potentially by it, or I feel a bit apprehensive about the event. But because you aren't quite in the overwhelmed segment, you can be a bit more present, but maybe not as laser focused as you'd like to be. So the behavior might be just passively engaging with the event. So in that sense, yes, your physical training can help carry you there. Because of course, if you're passively engaging, you're just going through the motions a bit. Yes, it might not be as sharp and, and laser focused as you would like it to be, but you're not going to be as overwhelmed or you know, your performance won't be as affected as that segment. And then conversely, the adaptive one might be thinking things like, I think this is a big event. I think that I've done a lot of training. Yes, I'm nervous, but I can convert that nervousness into excitement or try and reframe the way I look at this event. So then you feel, yes, you do feel a bit nervous. That stress doesn't go away. But there's other feelings that accompany it that outweigh the stress of it, in a sense, the negative stress of it, in a sense. You start to feel excited to meet new people, to meet another combat sport practitioner. You start to feel excited to play your game. You start to feel determined to put in your training. You start to feel curious to see, okay, what will I do with this game? How will it get, try out? Because this is really a good way of actually testing it. And your behavior becomes a lot more fluid and present and a lot more engaged with the event. So you're no longer overwhelmed and you're not just muddling through. You're actively really present and flowing with the motion of this competition, which is a hard thing to do because competition is stressful. I say competition is rarely about the sport itself. It's more about your psychological training. So it's a great test to see how you can progress and build that adaptiveness, aka your resilience. Yeah, I think my last competition is a good example of that. I was like in my whole competition career, I only fought once against somebody my size, I always had to go higher. Now, last time I signed up and there was, I was on master one and the other woman was uh, adult. So of course they put us together, no problem. But what they also did was that they scratched the weight class, which I didn't know because I thought, okay, we will be the same. So I was on point, everything good, you know, put in the work, put in also the mental work, all that. 
And then I realized that she just didn't make weight or anything because there was no reason to. And I don't know why they didn't do it, but they didn't tell me. So normally when I know I'm going to fight somebody much bigger, I am mentally prepared, right? But this time I was actually so stoked and happy that I could fight somebody my weight class. And I mean, when you watch it, it's <laughs> there's an old dimension, it's different. So, okay. First, the first match, okay? She pulls guard, but more like she just sits down and with her power, she just like, wham, you know? And it wasn't, I felt like this ragdoll, yeah? So I was ragdolled there in her close guard. Now, the rest of this match, we, we fought it twice. The rest of this match was just me every time opening her guard. So her every time, because in that regard, that was the easy part. But I couldn't really seem to pass because she just pulled me back right in. And I was like, damn, I'm just like, I... I didn't figure, I mean, later I felt like, okay, I could have tried for a footlock or whatever, but it was really hot because every time I was like, okay, reset, start over. And every time I opened this guard, but then I just got muscled through. Okay, little pause, little break because we would fight again. Then I was like, okay, I do not want to be in her close guard. I somehow either start in a guard myself, but I'm not a guard puller. I'm much more of like, kind of like a thrower or like immediate passer. So, okay. I was thinking about that and I just knew what I had to do. I was like, I didn't feel disheartened by this. I was like, okay, she is bigger. She is stronger. But if I'm the smarter one or whatever, you know, that doesn't say anything. So then the second time I fought, since she had success with her close guard, most likely she will want to pull guard again because that was what worked. So I decided to come in and I kind of like aggressively or like intensely rather went in. And indeed, she was really frantically going for grips. So then you can also see it in the video. I know you saw it. She pulled and I just, you know, jumped, bam, right through her, her, her guard pull. And I never did this in training. I've never done this. <laughs> this is it. I never done this. I know things like when I do that, I, that I pull my elbow and my knee together, but then I don't actively do a, a say Muay Thai knee in the air to just, you know, do this knee slide pass. I've never did it, but I was kind of like, that must be the solution because I know she would pull guard again because that's where she was, where she felt safe. That's where she won the match. So for me, there was like this moment that in the end, I was so proud of myself because kind of in the moment, it's like little in between. I didn't feel disheartened. I didn't feel beaten. I was like, I, she can be beat. And as I was going in a second, okay, bam. So that's one. And of course, then you get different problems that you need to solve. And in the end, they got this beautiful overall sweep. Like the thing is this, because of that mindset and because I could adapt, I could show good jujitsu. And that was for me so much more powerful than a medal or not. It meant that I was much smaller. It was also my first time after three years out because of COVID and, and my ACL. Also, my knee held up great. I didn't even think of it when I jumped, which also shows that it's battle tested against a bigger opponent. So for me, it was just like so many wins. And that is kind of like, I think what people, and especially coaches also should teach their students is like, how do you define success? Because to me, success is not per se a medal. Absolutely not. And again, this comes down to that um, contextual stressor on the individual. That's why Thrive Drive is so great, right? Because you're talking about individuals who've been affected by life circumstances or life events coming into training. And I think the biggest misnomer is this whole coddling people. It's not what it's about. It's making the space available for that individual to work hard in and to train hard and to push themselves for who they are and their individualities. And I think that focusing solely on just winning a medal 
it completely negates the journey and the process that you've take, undertaken to improve, to get better, to learn, to grow, not only in, on the mats, but internally and psychologically as well. And I know it's cliche when they say when you step on the mats, it's a win, but it really is, especially for people who struggle with that sort of thing, who do it to test and improve and strengthen their psychological resolve. And, you know, who might have had events in the past that have made them psychologically vulnerable to stressors, made them struggle to get to that adaptive resilience stage. And they've done the work by training, by practicing a martial art in order to get better at that. And I think that takes huge guts. And coaches, I think should be better equipped at acknowledging this a bit more and acknowledging that some people might find it much easier to go to competition than others. That's not a slight on them because, again, their wins could be, you know, doing things like a a flying armbar, doing competition, doing all their beautiful moves, which is incredibly impressive and needs to be commended. And for someone else, a win looks different. That doesn't mean someone's win is more or less impressive than the others. It's about knowing when someone has worked hard and acknowledging it and because we're all human beings and individual and different, our way of creating resilience and adaptiveness to stress is going to look variant compared to others. And that should be celebrated, I think. Our differences, our strengths, what we give to the community of the sport by being on the mats and having our own story and path is what creates that tribe in in a way that is supportive and open rather than cultish. And, you know, it's a bit like... um, I'm just thinking of, you know, my favorite anime programs where they have each each character is beloved for their own value, their own reasons for what they brought to the table for their own stories. And that's really important to honor. When you go for a competitive event, it's about showcasing you and showcasing your journey, win or lose. And often I think that, as you know, it's it's what happens when we lose, how we deal with it, how we come back from it, how we then create more tangible wins with medals though again that's that's only you know a, a fifth of the story but how we come back from these stresses that really showcase our progress and showcase how we are improving in the sport and improving psychologically in ourselves yeah lately i read in a just a post from a black belt from Belgium and he was just saying like yeah you know it's about medals like you know when you got second you just lost you know the you know you lost gold also he also said like you know either you win or you learn and he said that he hates this thing. I mean, this quote from Mandela is also a different context, but also he was saying like, yeah, those people that say it's not about winning are those that lose. And I'm kind of like, oh, excuse me. Like I have both won and lost. And I still believe like the moment that you're like, yeah, if you lose the medal or, or if you get second, you lost gold or this kind of thing. I'm kind of like, I like it, friends, much more. Another example was uh, a submission only tournament last September. And my husband he won a few matches, then he lost one, and then he still had to battle for the third place, which he won. On the medal was like tapped once, won again. And I found it so great. And then like, you know, second was like, you know, only tapped once, and then like uh, goal was like never tapped. But I liked this bronze medal so well because you tapped once and then you won again. And to me, that is really what this growth mindset, this this adapting is truly about. I didn't discuss then with this black belt because whatever, but I was also thinking like, this is exactly, I think, the wrong message to send because it was also his student I actually fought. And if you watch the whole match, like there was not really technique, it was just pure force and not much technique, which I find such a shame because if I, I'm pretty sure she's capable of a whole lot more. But if there is so much pressure on getting this medal, you know, then they yeah. just kind of... You're just going to muscle through it. 
yeah and it's and i'm kind of like because some friends of mine all said like yeah if i were her i would not be happy with these medals because you are just showing all kinds of beautiful techniques and stuff and you scored so many points and she did not really and i said yeah i don't blame anyone really or if anything the coach should think about that why is that i mean people were always like learning how it could have lost i'm like oh well she one point powered through i had to tap with this choke i had to tap yeah yeah of course. because i was almost going out um but this is for me like this thing that we need to think about like what do you tell your students like our kids they are extremely successful also our, our adults but especially our kids are extremely successful why i always tell them you don't have to compete but I invite you to do it because it is just in general a great experience. You're somewhere else. You're neat. You're it's like a puzzle. You have to puzzle somebody you don't know. And I also said, if this is your first competition, typically you will lose. Not because you're not good, but just because of the atmosphere, sounds, movement everywhere. There's a ref. There's many people shouting. Some coaches being a little bit soccer coaches. Like all of a sudden, you have to all take this in. I said, whatever happens that day doesn't reflect on your jiu-jitsu. I said, but it's the perfect opportunity for you to learn about yourself. How do you deal with that? And even if you lose a match, it's not over because it's round robin. You have other matches. And that's what I mean with trauma informed. We don't cuddle. I'm not going to say, oh yeah, you'll be fine. No, I'm going to say you most likely won't win maybe a medal or a match. But that doesn't mean that you don't win as in you get there and you learn so much about yourself. And I also say... I'll be proud of you no matter what, because I know you work hard and I know you will do your best. And fun thing, we have almost all of them, the very first time, not only do they win matches, they win medals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, and not because of showing up or because there was only one opponent. No, no, no. They had several fights. Mm -hmm. And to me, I then also don't praise them for being talented. I praise them for putting in the work for putting in that they weren't disheartened when they made a mistake or because they were overwhelmed. What I focus on is what they did. Because we also had a few kids that one could say are talented, but when you tell them that, they don't believe they need to work much because they're talented, right? <laughs> they think it will come to them. So we are very sure to always, when we compliment, because you can destroy a lot by, by, by complimenting. When I say to a kid, oh, you'll be fine, you're talented, and then this kid loses, that kid is not going to want to compete again or an adult. So also there, and in the upcoming Thrive Life Method, we're really gonna go into this. I'm like, how do you give compliments and how do you criticize in a growth-minded way? That's a big one. Maybe you can also already say something about that. No, I think that's a really good, good, um, a really, really good approach. And I think that just as you um, wouldn't take criticism super personally, it's more of a, uh, more of a just a solid constructive outline of, an action or a behavior or a process. I also think you shouldn't take compliments personally. I think you tread the line in the middle where if someone gives you a compliment on a certain feat or an action, you separate it from yourself. You are a human being with whole parts. You are someone who partakes in a sport, but you also have a family and friends and you have this hobby and you like to do this on Saturdays and you like have this quirk and this quirk. And I think the more you separate yourself from your whole self, you as a human, from these acts of complimenting or critiquing, the more it kind of just feels like an objective, transparent comment on your journey and what you need to do to tweak and improve rather than a comment on yourself. And I couldn't agree more. I think when people start commenting on talent, 
that is difficult to pass through and separate from yourself as a human being and the compliment. If someone says you are talented, even that word, even you are talented, that sentence implies you as a person, as a human being, you are the talent, you are the talented. So let's say you lose in a competition, which is incredibly normal for everyone, for world champions, for newbies alike. I think it's part of the process in many ways. Um, then you suddenly think, but I'm talented. If I'm talented, why did I lose? And you kind of have this you know, identity break where you're suddenly stressing and feeling depressed and anxious over something that's very normal and is no reflection on your jiu-jitsu or your journey. So saying things like you are talented, I think can be a bit of a dangerous path to go down. Of course, if someone has a, a solid uh, solid ability to pass and separate identity and compliment, that's totally fine. But I think it's better to construct routine, training, treating that individual like an athlete in terms of what the habits are looking like, what's their training looking like. Can they do things more productively? I think people talk so much about training really hard, 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 but sometimes it's actually better to be smart about how you train. I think recovery is totally forgotten about in particularly in jiu-jitsu, understandably, because not everyone was trained to be a coach, not everyone was trained to understand the physiology of recovery and training and how recovery helps your training and the cognitive aspect of it. Um, I think the more you focus on the actions of an individual, the less likely someone is to internalize it, be it negative or positively. Same thing can be said for criticisms, right? If someone is just constantly criticizing you, you know, um, I'm just using my own experience from personally, like I was told that I wasn't a real blue belt and all this stuff. And that can really affect you as someone you, you again, it's difficult to separate that from just, you know, an offhand immature comment versus that's who I am. I'm, I'm not worthy of X, Y, Z. I'm, I'm just bad. I won't ever get good. And that's a difficult thing to say. If you're, But if you're saying, oh, we noticed this was going on, that was really cool. What happened here when this happened, when you got swept, when you got taken, this was the mistake you made. Here's how you can, once you drill this and practice it, here's how you can um, correct it is much more progressive and productive because that person then separates themselves from who they are as an athlete on the mats versus the process. And when they become more process orientated, that's when you can really lean into playfulness, into growth, into using your mistakes as part of the fun in a sense. Like if I'm playing a video game, I'm just using this because I like to gamify some stuff. To, it really helps to make a bigger picture of it. If I'm playing a video game and there's a really hard boss, I keep losing. I'm still having fun. <laughs> I'm still enjoying it because when I do win, I'm thinking I've applied the strategy. I've learned from my mistakes. I've learned the patterns of what I need to do. I feel really good. But even when I lose, I'm still having fun because that's the point of a game. And I think there's such an emphasis on like serious hard work. And at the end of the day, we're just, we're hugging people a lot. We're hugging people violently. And the reason we got into this sport among, uh, among more um, psychological and, you know, holistic aspects of who we want to be as people and growth, we did it because it's fun. And I think we need to remember the fun of it. So when you remember how fun something is, you don't take too seriously whether or not someone's complimenting you, saying you're the next, you know, next Gorn Ryan in terms of skill or, or someone's critiquing you and someone's being a bit immature about it. You're like, whatever, I'm still having fun. And I think that can be really refreshing. Again, revisiting those values like I talk about in philosophy with how you're acting and how you're navigating your habits and your routine and your training, you can revisit the fun aspect 
And actually, for me personally, that's when I've had the most progress, when I've treated it as a fun thing rather than something that's super serious and, you know, I'm a modern day samurai. <laughs> it, I think, plays everything. For instance, when I have a um, self-defense course or we have a jiu-jitsu beginners class, we do all kinds of sparring games, basically. And because it's a game, they just try out. So I just tell them only what I want to them. So for instance, one lies on his back has the feet between them and the other. I said, well, I want you to get past the legs and get chest on chest. That's all I told them. And I said, there are many ways. And I want you guys to figure it out. The one on bottom, I want you to keep your legs between. I do not want you to get past. I want you to prevent that. And we didn't explain any techniques. I just told them where I want them to go and what I wanted the other to prevent. I tell you, scissoring motions, they come almost immediately. Shrimping motions, they come kind of immediately. People go around. People think when around doesn't work anymore because of scissoring, they start thinking of passing through. Already start sometimes, you know, the bit more fleshy ones uh, to jump out, whatever. They start to think. And also in this game, because it's not about winning and losing. Because the stakes are also low, even if there is a, say, chess on chess, you lose and you change position, it's so low stake. And also, R, we had lately with the white belt who, when you roll him, he closes up completely. So it's very hard for you to submit him, but he will always lose because he doesn't escape. So I told him, trust me, open up and try to escape. For sure, you'll get tapped more, but you will also increase your ability to get out and maybe tap somebody else in the end, you know, that you're the one controlling the match. Because when you just close up, you will lose anyway. But not only that, you don't learn. Because who cares when you get tapped, right? I mean, especially me, I was tiny when I got my blue belt, big white belts that had nowhere near as much experience or um, technique as I got, they still could just completely ragdoll me, right? And ever since we really made this point, he need opens up and he is like, oh, Actually, I can escape, one, that it can be done, which was already huge. But now it's so much fun to roll with him because he is less bent on like, oh, no, I do not want to get tapped. He's like, whatever. Because often with him, I do, when we tap them, we just continue in that situation. And then I ask, okay, how would you escape? And if he doesn't know, I help him make that he escapes. And then we continue. And that's kind of how you get further and further. And also in a match, whether it's on a competition or, or, or at home, you need to constantly figure out and try to like be a step ahead of your opponent so, or your partner. So in the more positions you get, the more strategies and more yeah, ideas, also experience-based because you've been there before, you know what to expect. Like when I'm in side control, I kind of know the type of escapes they have depending on what kind of side control I have. When I'm high, I know that their hips are very free. So most likely they will try a hip escape. When I control the hips, they may want to get up because their upper body are, are is more mobile. So based also where I am, I kind of can predict what they can try. So if I know that, then I also can know uh, how to prevent them from doing that. But you only learn that when you play it a lot and that you make many, many mistakes that they get out a lot. Because I always say, if somebody gets out, means that you didn't close up something enough or your weight distribution was slightly off. So often I tell them, go back and see whether you can make it tighter. And like that, I mean, our kids, some, like last June when they competed, we had a few kids, they trained for like three months and they still really made on a podium and won most of their matches. Not because they knew many submissions, they kind of maybe knew an arm bar or so, but they were so superior when it came to positioning themselves simply because they played that so much. So they did these things naturally. Whereas other kids were like, 
oh, when I'm here, I should do this technique. Mm. But we all know there are many techniques in any given situation. And the moment that somebody's slightly behaving differently, they're like, oh my God, what do I do now? Because the grip is different. And our kids didn't care. They just know, I want to get to mount. I want back control. So they will go and get there. So yeah, I think games is the way really also to resilience and indeed to just kind of override these negative thought patterns and behavioral patterns. Because when we play, we don't care. And when we don't care, we learn a lot. Yeah, you're less you're less attached to narratives in your head formed by hierarchies, by 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 institutions that lack social fluidity and encourage that kind of um, negative thinking internally, because you're constantly thinking, I'm not enough, I need to do more. Whereas when there's more of a gamified aspect of the martial art or the other sport itself, you're more likely to engage with it more. And of course, when you engage with it more, as you say, you just get extra mat time, fine tuning positions and exploring what it feels like to be in this position and just having fun and trying stuff out. And I completely agree. You you only learn through making mistakes because you learn what it feels like when it doesn't go right. So then you're like, okay, what would it feel like if it went well? And you change your body and you change your positioning and mentally you're thinking, this is how it feels physically. My body's in this space in terms of motor learning. The research thoroughly supports actually creating more errors or not doing, you know, pretty movements initially, because that's actually how you develop um, the skill development of whatever you're trying to be learning. Yeah. I also think that, um, when I when we play these games, they're also not super hard on the body. Yeah. Because you're not you don't get this like, oh, I need to get this tap, you know? Like it's really fascinating is that it's you really train smarter, you need less recovery. And yet, I mean, our guys basically we were sparring all class. Yeah. But we have these specific sparring games that really focus on specific aspects. And because of that, like in the beginning for warming, of course, it's like lower 30% intensity just to kind of warm up the body. And I always tell them, like, when you guys realize it goes well, only when both consent, you can, you know, put some more on if you wish, but always with consent. And that's how they figure out and kind of get to the point what is great for both or all parties, especially when you switch partners. But in so doing, they don't realize, but basically for 90 minutes, they are kind of sparring all the time and get also real feedback because the problem with technique drilling is that you don't really get real feedback because they kind of have to let you do it still. Yeah. And here, yeah. and here we have like, we usually we also build specific moves like that you first need to fight for a specific grip. And once you have it, okay, then you can do the submission. Mm -hmm. And as we progress, we say, okay, now you have to fight for the grip and in a safe way to not to crank the submission, but to get the submission working with the other. So that's how we cut like step by step. Like how I taught once an arm bar, I had a new person, he never did an arm bar before. We just started in say, you know, the classic arm bar that you have between your legs and your arms, you're kind of like, you know, in this uh, plus four, like from mount that you kind of step over. We started in a step over position and um, one person just had the arm. And I said, you only want to stay in this position. You don't want the arm bar yet. You just want to sit here and hold the position and the other wants to get up. Now, in the beginning, the other gets out pretty easily. Then that, that strategy doesn't work anymore. Then they have to think of a different strategy. So all of a sudden they, you get the hitchhiker, you get all kinds of stuff. We didn't teach them that. Then the next thing is that they have the arm stretched and the other one still needs to try to escape. Of course, the other one does gently, just holds it, doesn't really crank it. Then we start from mount and we're like, okay, you need to, um, we start that they have one arm at least already isolated. 
And then they need to get into that position to do the armbar. And the other has to defend that. And the last stage is, of course, you're just a mount and you have to fight to isolate the arm and all of that. And what happens is that this person in the end, you know, when he came back, he didn't know anything, but he could do, he, he could hit an armbar on white and blue belts. Because if we start there, because he knew it so well, because he sensed, he closed up the space, all that. And I didn't teach them any real technique. I just told them, I want you to hold this. I want you to close up these, da, da, da. you have to figure it out. And that's how he figured out his armbar. And I think it's also so much easier on the body. So much easier. And I really like when you said his armbar, because I think so many coaches, uh, some black belts nowadays want to teach their style. And that style might not work for someone. I, as I say, with my students, I also want to say, I want you to find the way that works for you. Here are some guidelines and some concepts that help you get the way there. But I want you to do what works for you and not... To blindly follow my advice, if that doesn't work for you, don't, you know, I want you to find the technique that feels good for you, that works, that, you know, follows these principles. Yes, because that's how you get control. But if you have your own style or flair, engage with it. Because again, it makes the sport their own. It makes them want to come back to class. It makes them actually look forward to training something that can be quite stressful. And that's a way that actually develops their resilience and adaptive adaptiveness to it because they know if they have a bad day's training or their head's not in the right space, they know they have a place to have that playfulness, you know, to allow themselves to de-stress and decompress from everything going on around them. And at the same time, building that resilience and that adaptiveness to external external changes. Yeah, I also say like you will have days where you just are like you tap everyone. And then there are days where you're the one, you know. Oh, yeah. And I say, like, and that's normal. But that's also that you know that you are learning. Because, you know, that's my other thing about this black belt saying like, yeah, you know, if, if you get second, you lost gold. The thing is this, we had a few girls, like teenagers, and they started in Germany early. So when they were fighting um, or competing, they won everything to the point where some girls didn't want to compete against them anymore because it was by the book. I also couldn't see a mistake. So then I really had to work hard and I got a lot of, lot of pushback. They were already like 13, 14, 15, that age. So I want them to compete against adult women. I mean, there you have a lot of uh, adult women like, oh, I don't want to fight because what if I lose? So fucking what? But anyway, I got some to do it. And yeah, they also started losing again. And it was so great because they enjoyed the matches much more yeah. because... For they were challenged again. They had they, they they couldn't just do like you know, veni vidi vici. No, they really had to like. They were like, wow. And I could also see where their mistakes lie. So finally, we also could progress much more in class. So for them, losing was the best thing that could ever happen to them after having won so much. So I think they weren't disheartened, and they also weren't like, oh, so I guess I'm not talented after all. No, no. That's not it. It just means like we gave you a bigger challenge and now you, they can see like, oh, wow, there's so much more to be learned. There's so much more to be done. And they were motivated. And also what you said, like about finding your own style, like my husband and I, we have things that are similar in different styles also because of weight and size differences. So I always say when I compete with somebody heavier, I fight differently than when somebody my own size. Um, so you, so you also need to be adaptive there. And I think almost every technique can be for everyone, but you have to adapt it. I also had coaches said to me like, no, no, Irene, you have to do it like that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have that type of uh, power to just push it through. I don't. And then they also are not responsive to that at all. They feel slighted actually when you dare to say no to their technique, but they fail to understand that jujitsu, although as you say, has specific concepts, is still very individual. 
I think many coaches really miss that. So also in the Fight Life Method, we say you want to meet your students where they are at and not expect them to go where you are at. I mean, this is like one of one of the eight main principles that we have of trauma from coaching is precisely that. Because when they cannot reach you, why would they come back? Because they feel like a failure. Why would you come back to a place that makes you feel bad? Exactly. I completely agree. And I think what you touched upon there as well, it, it, it perfectly encapsulates like the cognitive dissonance going on in the sport sometimes because there's this idea that you have to be tough and be hard. And I think people have a massive misconception of what it means to be tough and hard. For me, being tough, resilient, is about having that flexibility, knowing that no matter what comes at you, you can adapt your lifestyle. You know, it's not about being 100% perfect. It's not about being 100% all day, every day. It's about making your own way of being consistent, showing up to training, maybe not sparring if you're having, you know, for instance, a, a bad day with your anxiety, depression, but you know, working games, working techniques and observing your teammates and also being able to know when recovery is actually going to help your training more. It's so common to wear as a badge of honor, just training when you're injured, training when you're sick, training when, yes, you're having a mental health flare up, which is an illness and still pushing through it. And then look at worm betide you end up being very sick or the injury gets worse and then you're out of the mats for even longer and because i think that the sport lacks regulation at times obviously you can't help the fact that people don't necessarily have a background in this stuff originally and i think as a result just saying just train harder just do this makes a lot of people sick puts people off the sport and doesn't again give the student time to address their own training in a way that's conducive and growth orientated for them it could be that you know if someone's coming back from a bad illness or a bad injury they come in play some games they watch some sparring and they build up week by week rather than just chastising a student for not training hard enough for not coming in to train hard enough for you know missing a week literally to recover and then coming back more cognitively refreshed and actually engaging with material more it's it's a shame when resilience is distorted because actually what i think is more resilient is knowing you want to train badly and sitting with that discomfort and anxiety of not training but you know best for you at that time is not to train that's actually more resilient and takes more work than just going to training, going through the motions, because to be honest, it's a bit of an escape through everyday life. And you go because it's a bit of a reliance thing for you. And I've been through this phase myself. But what I've learned over time is actually because resilience is loosely defined as an adaptiveness to change or stress. What's more stressful or change orientated than a change in your training routine when you have a competition or when you, you know, have to adapt to something that is stressful, like an injury or illness? It requires more toughness, I would say, to actually sit with the fact you can't train and adapting to that. What can I do when I'm not training? Can I watch instructionals? Can I study my game? Can I do something that's not my martial art because I'm a human being and I am whole and I don't just, I'm not just so-and-so the athlete. I'm not just the martial artist. I also have this to offer myself. And I think that takes practicing as well. When the athlete has to take time off training and not trying to push through, because actually that's resisting the change. That's the countenance of resilience. Resilience is about going with the change and adapting to it. I think this is very strong. And I actually think that, I mean, the first coach that we also uh, left to the sexual harassment, he would really at one point bitch when there was this uh, wave of people being injured. And he was like, yeah, even if you're injured, you can still come, you can still watch and you can still do something. And da, da, da. And actually, yes, people came because they felt, uh, of course, ashamed and all that. So they came. But at the end of the day, 
either they got so injured that, you know, they didn't show up anymore. But either way, whether they did or not, they felt horrible. They felt every time that they weren't good enough, they felt every time that they were lacking somehow. Because obviously when you're injured, you're weak or you don't count or it's not big enough or I don't know what. It's it's really what destroys resilience. And I totally agree with you. Like when I was out for a year because of the ACL reconstruction, like my God, how much I would have given to just be able to, you know, but I know that's not what I need right now. And it was like how I, yes, I, I taught. So I, I made sure I was still busy with it so I could still learn. I mean, it was actually impressive in retrospect, how much I still end up learning and improving, even though I didn't really, when I could roll again, it took some time to get like um, precise to feel that because you need to recalibrate. But I had all kinds of new things that I already could kind of employ. And also I started doing handstanding because I thought I need something, I need to focus on something else. You know, I, I really focus a lot on Thrive Drive. I put all these things up because as you say, Jiu-Jitsu is a part of what I like but it's not who I am. And I think too many people say like, yeah, but jujitsu is my life. And I think that that's a problem. Like I am a gym owner. I have Thrive Drive. I have all these things. I'm also an academic, but I never saw academia as my life. It was my work. I, um, my gym, I love my gym, you know, and I love my work, but it's my work. Apart from that, there's Lorraine who loves dogs, Lorraine that loves painting, singing, all the other things. And it's just a part of me, but it doesn't define me as a whole being. And I think that many coaches actually make this really rookie mistake of saying like, if you don't show up enough, often enough, then oh, clearly Jiu-Jitsu is not enough for you or not important enough. You know, you don't know that. Like maybe some people can only make it once or twice because of kids, of work, of God knows what. And I think they actually destroy resilience, even though especially martial arts could be such an amazing space for resilience practice. I completely agree with you. And I think, again, when you describe meeting your students where where they're at, a prime example, right, you've got maybe like a 16-year-old prime athlete prodigy, trains six times a week, five, six times a week for two hours at a time. Of course, that is incredibly amazing and admirable. But that 16-year-old doesn't have a job or kids or other responsibilities that adults do who then take up a sport. And they do, as you say, one, two, three times a week. And that's still not enough in the eyes of the coach. But actually, if you think about it, technically speaking, they're doing more than that teen athlete in terms of juggling adult responsibilities. It's not to quantify or say someone's better or the other, but it's to put into perspective when a coach or someone says, you need to just train harder, that's the only answer. Hang on a second. This human being who's also adding in martial arts to their repertoire in terms of life development and personal development and, you know, skill cultivation, adding in martial arts, a combat sport, a very complex sport at that, especially if it's jujitsu, and they're doing this on top of that, they're working a job, they're running a family, they're being there for their loved ones. I think that's incredibly admirable. And I don't think it's talked about enough. A lot of hobbyists are looked down upon or shunned upon, or even if the hobbyist decides to go for competition, even better, of course, because local comps are perfect for that. But there seems to be this idea that if you're not training five, six times a week, you just don't want it enough, or you're just not dedicated. And these people have very, you know, responsibility-driven jobs and run a family. And some people, actually, for them, that is the equivalent of six, seven times a week, twice a day, because of everything that's going on for them. And that has to be taken into account by the coach. You have to treat everyone that comes into the class as someone who is driven to develop themselves and their own set of resilience, rather than, you know, 
categorizing students as like the team mm-hmm. prodigy, the competitor, the this person. And it, I think that creates kind of like a high school hierarchy mentality where you've got like the old hobbyists and then like, oh yeah, this person's going to be the next, you know, Rotolo person. And it's just, it, it doesn't sit well with me because you don't have that. I mean, just speaking from experience as a fitness coach, there wasn't that in personal training or even fitness training you had people who were experienced lifters, but there was always this welcoming joy when someone would come in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a busy mum or someone who finally made time for themselves after years of work. There was never this um, this snobbery towards, oh, you're only training once or twice a week. It was always welcoming when they'd come in and want to do something for their health because it's an amazing thing to do. And sometimes I feel that there's a, a lot of hierarchy in these jiu-jitsu communities that can actually create a lack of social fluidity which paradoxically takes away that community aspect that people talk about the sport so much. And that's a great part of it. And I think that needs to be addressed a bit more that, you know, saying that, of course, consistency is important in skill development, but saying to someone, you know, you just don't want it enough when this person has a a really important job and has all these other responsibilities compared to that of someone who started young and it's now, this is their athletic trajectory, which is still very impressive. It creates a very, um, no bad smell I think yeah and I also think like they are also not thankful for what they have because it's not these young athletes that pay the bills let's I mean the majority I mean look if you look at the school I think if if you just say about let's say you count in those that are really like the athletes that really compete kind of all the time and those every now and then compete I don't believe that it will make up more than 10% in a school even okay, let's let's be generous. Say twenty percent does that, but eighty percent does not. So this eighty percent is what pays the bills. This eighty percent is also that creates partners so that they can improve and do well in competition. So I think everybody has a role to play that makes it great because those that compete they bring new experiences, new ideas back on the mat. So they will also uplift you know the rest of the group. Everybody has their role to play, and I think that should be respected and validated for all of them. Like, it's really not, like, that you have a successful competitive school may attract many students, but whether they stay or not, that has nothing to do with how skilled at violence you are. It's about, can you create a healthy, growth-minded, non-judgmental learning environment? That is what will make people stay or not. Of course, you need a decent skill level. Otherwise, what do you teach? But usually that's not the problem. That is usually on point. What's not on point is actually teaching skills, coaching skills, it's a whole different skill set to master apart from the actual art. Many people are like, oh, I'm good in this, so I want to teach it. But it, that's a very one-dimensional way of looking at it. And many are then confronted by, oh, oops, because there are also conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, maybe not between you, but between other students, and you have to deal with that. And many, I mean, people are not the first ones to look away, right? But you can't. You can't. And that's also resilience, yeah? I mean, we talk about it. They're like, train hard or go home, blah, blah, blah. But, too, but they are like too scared, these super muscly guys. They're too scared to address, you know, when somebody is behaving inappropriately. And I say behaving inappropriately, not saying that they are bad, but they are currently behaving inappropriately. Who knows? Maybe they got fired. Maybe they're just stressed. It can be many reasons. But still, that doesn't mean that they can therefore display it on the mats. That's also a different resilience thing. But it's also resilience of the coach to call that out in, of course, a informed way and also to not take it personally and all that. I said, but that is also badass resilient is to do it. Nobody likes that. 
but it's part of the job. And that's really one of the crucial elements that many coaches are just overlooking and ignoring, not because they don't necessarily see it, but just because they're scared. And then they hide behind their, 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 their medals and their achievements, but that does not suffice. Mm, absolutely. I completely agree. Again, it really emphasizes the fact that as a sport, it's very much it requires a psychological understanding and underpinning of yourself and others and willingness to delve into psychological concepts that help you better yourself as a coach and create that safe environment because you need to understand interpersonal behavior on some basic level in order to cultivate an environment that is healthy, that is fluid, that enables people to train hard and push themselves for themselves and for the group as well. And I think that's missing in a lot of jiu-jitsu communities um, because the emphasis is just solely on just train, 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 just train. That's the answer to everything, just train. But how do you think people come to the realization they need to train a martial art? How do you think they actually get the wearable to train regularly? It's a psychological habit, behavior-based issue. Yeah, and also like lately, like a one of our coaches, student coaches, he came to me and said, oh, Lorraine, I'm so sorry, I can't make it to first day's class. I said, sure, so what, what, what are your plans? And well, there was a movie premiere to a movie he ha- he assisted in. And I'm like, of course, go. But I mean, he already felt a little bad. And I said, no, I was like, you told me in advance, always good, enjoy your life. You know, <laughs> like if you miss once helping me teaching the kids, I mean, uh, the world will still keep on going on. Right? <laughs> and I think sometimes people also kind of have, are only surrounded by martial artists and don't really have outside that you get such a distorted view of yeah. what is important. So I'm like, my best friends were out of academia and I'm also, I mean, I have many good friends in martial arts, but the best ones or, or more, the most reliable ones for me are outside because if I tell them stuff and they're like, you're accepting this, like what the hell is going on? And that's so great for me because they help me keeping my feet on the ground and to keep having kind of a reality check every now and then like because when you're in this weird world in this world bubble um priorities but also what's appropriate and inappropriate gets distorted so easily mm-hmm. i mean the same with women yeah i mean like i know women that are amazing uh competitors but i also know ethically they do not keep other women safe even though they also claim that they are there for female empowerment and i'm like yeah I'm sorry. I cannot. I cannot support you. I I validate you. I congratulate you for the work you put in in becoming on a personal level such a skilled athlete. Mm-hmm. That's all there, but I cannot support you otherwise because when you're hurting, uh, in the end, the the community, the sport, on the false pretense. Um, it doesn't matter what gender you have. Doesn't matter how many medals you have. To me, um, I cannot support that. So my last. Um, we're again running out of time. So it's already a longer one, which I actually don't mind at all. So maybe you can can take this together as the last question. Maybe you can combine it, which is always I ask, what is your favorite quote? Oh, I like the one um, by Campbell. I really like paraphrasing it um, off the top of my head. The, the cave you fear to enter contains the treasure you seek. So sometimes it's worth pushing through that initial reluctance even if it feels hard. And I reply that to whether it comes to starting to train, whether you need to rest for training, even though you want to train, whether it means having that hard conversation with uh, a client, your coach, uh, an interpersonal conversation, anything that can relate to that reluctance or fear or anxiety, often going through that process actually rewards you that, that resilience and adaptiveness that you've been seeking. And also 
that confidence and a new skill set of, of, of overcoming whatever you're trying to overcome. So I always appreciate that quote. I think that's one of the best I like. I think so too, because it's indeed this growth minded resilience is all, all packed in one quote. So I think that's really great to, um, to end this beautiful um, podcast with you. Thank you very much, Sophie. I think this was really cool. And I think we gave quite some pointers also for both athletes, training partners and coaches just to reassess about how do you praise, criticize, how do you show up on the mats? What do you do? What is truly important? What, what do you focus on? So I think they learned a lot. In the um, show notes, I will also add how you can get in touch with Sophie because online or if you're based in London, you can work with her and of course get your hands on her book because it's really, really fun to read. And like I said, you can finally learn and read a lot of philosophy without that you go nuts. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sophie, for this wonderful chat about resilience from a psychological perspective and how we can apply it in martial arts. I love that we got to nuance academia too, as it often seems so pervasive and scary for the willing layperson. Like in martial arts, we need to remain critical. The same holds true for academia and academic studies. For those wanting to get in touch with Sophie, please find her details in the show notes below. Definitely get your hands on her book, Philosophy, as it will shed light on you and your thought patterns and behaviors. 